So let's cultivate our motivation. So bodhicitta, the aspiration to attain a full awakening for the benefit of all living beings, is not uh, a theoretical concept or an intellectual uh, thing to play with. It's an actual <clears throat> mental state and experience that we need to deliberately cultivate. It's not going to arise on its own. Like everything else, it depends on causes. And its principal cause is the great compassion. So great compassion means really opening our hearts to living beings. So that we find their existence in, in cyclic existence something intolerable because we can see what or we know what their experiences have been like and will continue to be like and because we care so much about them we want them to be free of all these experiences in cyclic existence So this necessitates having a very good understanding of what cyclic existence is and a very strong determination to be free of it ourselves and to be able to free others from it as well. And those realizations in turn depend on other causes knowing the beginning elements of the path and transforming all these aspects of the path into experience requires diligence and fortitude on our own part as well as time. And so to practice continually consistently, and with a very happy mind. So with such a motivation, then let's continue with approaching the Buddhist path. Okay, so we're on page 258, Consumerism in the Environment. So here, again, His Holiness is relating uh, Buddhist principles to different fields uh, of activity uh, in society. And as he explained at the beginning, uh, he doesn't want to make it sound like he has advice for everybody in whatever field they work. Okay, so he's just talking in a general way and making some suggestions. Okay, so consumerism and the environment. Mm. 
knowledge of peace and the survival of life on earth as we know it are threatened by human activities that are bereft of humanitarian values. And that's really true, you know, when we can see with the climate change and environmental destruction that we're just thinking about the present economy. We're not thinking about the future. We're not thinking about other living beings or other human beings. The scope of uh, what uh, the choices being made, especially in our country, are uh, very, very narrow. Fortunately, the Paris uh, Climate Agreement exists and many other countries have signed out, but Trump has just uh, said that, he has said before that we are withdrawing and now he is starting that process of actively withdrawing. Yeah. You know, as well as uh, loosening the regula- regulations on coal plants. So it's almost as if uh, the present administration is doing the opposite of what the Paris Agreement is trying to accomplish. <laughs> can imagine we all have something to say about that, don't we? So we should say it. Yeah, we should write to our representatives. Destruction of nature and natural resources results from ignorance, greed, and disregard for sentient beings who depend on the earth for survival. Environmental degradation also cheats future generations who will inherit who will inherit a vastly degraded planet if the destruction of the natural environment continues at the present rate. Protecting the planet is an ethical issue. It's not just an economic issue. It's not just a weather, uh, you know, a meteorological issue. It's an ethical issue because it involves the uh, well-being and the suffering of others. While environmental destruction in the past could be attributed to ignorance, today we have more information. We must learn to work together for something we all care about, the survival and flourishing of our planet and the living beings, uh, and the beings living on it. While science, technology, and industrialization have brought much benefit, they have also been the source of many current tragedies, including uh, global warming and pollution. When we are able to recognize and forgive ignorant actions of the past, we gain strength to constructively solve problems in the present. Okay, so let's not hang on to whatever happened in the past, but rather learn from it and go ahead and make good decisions. Scientific predictions of environmental change are difficult for ordinary humans to fully comprehend. We hear about global warming and rising sea levels, increased cancer rates, depletions of, uh, depletion of resources, extinction of species, and overpopulation. The global economy may grow, and with it, extreme rates of energy consumption, carbon dioxide production, and deforestation. 
we must consider the prospects in the near future of global suffering and environmental degradation unlike anything in human history. Then we must do our best to prevent what is preventable and to prepare for what isn't. Okay? So rather than sitting and insulting each other and blaming each other, you know, see what is preventable and work to prevent it. And, you know, if certain things are not preventable and sea levels are going to rise, then make preparations for that because there's going to be mass migrations of people because they can't live in the cities on the coasts. So it's going to be very interesting. Human activity driven by the wish for present pleasure and convenience without care for future living beings and their environment cannot be sustained. Our greed needs to take the back seat to practical methods to care for nature and natural resources. More equal distribution of wealth among nations and among groups of people within each nation is essential, as is education about the importance of caring for the environment and for each other. I don't feel like I have a lot to add. I mean, most, I think everybody's pretty familiar with these issues, you know. Remembering our mutual dependence is a key to counteract harmful practices. Each sentient being wants happiness, not suffering. Developing a genuine, compassionate sense of universal responsibility is crucial. When we are motivated by wisdom and compassion, the results of our actions benefit everyone, not just ourselves. Okay, so really seeing here how Dharma principles of, you know, delaying pleasure and not just working for our own pleasure, motivated by greed, but thinking of delay, you know, delayed happiness, even in this life or on this planet for future generations, not just thinking about ourselves, but, you know, future living beings, um, you know, the ethics of all of this, uh, cultivating compassion for everybody involved, having fortitude, not getting angry and blaming, but doing something constructive, not getting depressed and discouraged, but continuing to do what we can. So the all the Dharma principles uh, and attitudes that are so important in our individual practice are important when we're working in uh, social activism, too, for example, around climate change. Mm -hmm. As individuals and as a society, we must practice contentment to counter our greed for more and better. No matter what we do to try to gratify our desires, we will not find total satisfaction. We talked about this just the other day, didn't we? External goods are not capable of providing this. Real fulfillment is found by adopting the inner disciplines of self-restraint and contentment, as well as the joy of love, compassion, and inner freedom. What is hard for us to 
to realize, though, as we talk about the value of contentment, if we're content, we don't consume so much. If we don't consume so much, then we don't waste the, net, the world's resources. We don't pollute so much. But, you know, there's this new gadget that it would be really nice to get. And it would, it would help our, you know, our work, our computer very good. It, there's a new cooking thing that we could use in our kitchen. Uh, you know, there's a new tool that's good for the work in the forest. Uh, you know, there's all these things that we could get. And, you know, we don't want to ride to town, so we can just order them online. And then UPS brings them up. And what's wrong with that? We're just getting the things we need. Okay? So we don't see this as an issue of our being discontent and of our wanting more and better, more and better, more and better. Yeah? And we don't think that by ordering things online that we're polluting because... Uh, you know, some days we had FedEx plus the post office plus UPS driving up here to deliver packages. I mean, imagine the gasoline that's spent getting things here from the the station, which is probably in uh, in Spokane. Yeah. So we talk about these things, but when it comes to ourselves giving something up or thinking in a more practical way uh, you know we don't do it yeah we just well you know we can use these color you know things for the the um, the printer and we might as well get another printer and the kitties need some new toys you know, as if just ordinary things aren't good enough for our cats. They have to have special toys. Um, you know, and and so uh, you know, we don't we don't think. Mm -hmm. And you compile all these little things that everybody does, and then you get global destruction. You know, you 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 get the pollution that happens. Yeah, or no matter how much we talk about not making so many trips into town, on one day we can have two people going into Spokane at two different times, two people going into Coeur d'Alene at two different times, one to take a water sample, one to go to the dentist, somebody going to UU, somebody going to the doctor. So four round trips you know, in one day, in and out of major cities, you know, I mean, we're polluting, aren't we? Yeah. And so to think of, of not doing this so much, but, you know, I, I really today feel like working on this and that, and I, the only way I can get the tools I need is to drive, you know, the materials I need is to drive in, into Spokane, you know, so instead of thinking ahead, uh, in the previous week when somebody else was going and going with that person, we just have the idea that morning to do this project, and then we feel like we, we have to go and get the materials we want right away. 
Okay, so we need to learn to think ahead, you know, and see who's going in when. And, you know, try not to go in so much. Yeah, because it takes so much time. I mean, it's an hour and a quarter, hour and a half drive one way. So you can spend two and a half to, to three or three and a half hours just in the car going in to go buy something. It takes up your whole day. Yeah. So it's really much better if we try and think ahead and plan ahead and don't just uh, jump in the car and, you know, go get something when we feel like it. So, you know, I've spoken about this many, many times, and it's one of those issues that's kind of in one ear and out the other because it's not so convenient, and we like to be things to be convenient. Yeah? So, uh, you know, just kind of reading about uh, the climate change and, and the pollution and saying, this is so terrible, we have to do something about it. You know, they have to do something about it. They shouldn't pollute so much, those factories and corporations. But who's buying the stuff made by the factories and the corporations? Yeah, it's us. So, um, you know, we have, have to look, yeah? Who's driving the cars? It's us. Yeah? So to, to um, think about this, you know, and accept our responsibility. Every person in each nature, nation wants to improve its standard of living. If the standard of living of poorer countries were raised to that of the wealthier countries, natural resources would not be able to meet the demand. Even if we had the resources to provide a car to every person on the planet, would we want to? Could we control the pollution that cars produce? Mm -hmm. But I want a car, you know. I mean, we have different cars, but, you know, we ride, take this car into town, this car has this, and this car has that good quality, and then we have this truck, and that truck, and this truck, and this thing, and they, and they all serve for going to different places or provide different purposes because you can pick up something with this vehicle, but it's too small. Uh, the other vehicle is too small to pick it up, so we need a whole fleet of vehicles. Yeah? And yet we say, you know, we should really not consume so much, we should have more equal distribution of wealth, and so on and so on. But, but we need to consider what we're doing. Mm -hmm. Sooner or later, the lifestyle of wealthier nat nations will have to change according to new imperatives. While people expect a successful economy to grow each year, growth has its limits. I always wonder why the economy has to grow each year. Yeah, yeah, of course, it's for money. But, you know... Why can't you still make money and have the economy to be the same as it was before? 
No, it needs to grow. So we need to produce more and use more resources and, uh, you know, spread them in more places and encourage more people to buy them. And that's called progress. And we're the ones who are going to experience the results. Rather than being unprepared and colliding with the problems these limitations entail, we should cultivate a sense of contentment and voluntary restraint. Then we may be able to avoid or at least reduce the disastrous results of overconsumption. With a good heart and wisdom, we will be motivated to do what needs to be done to protect each other and the natural environment. This is much easier than having to adapt to severe environmental conditions projected for the future. Okay? But then you also look, you know, people have houses, what do they do? They tear down the house and they build a totally new one. They tear down a huge apartment building that's maybe 20 years old because they want to build, you know, exclusive condos in it. So, you know, many things that are still usable and aren't decayed, we, you know, we tear down because we want to build something new. Yeah. Okay. Um, the world of business and finance. This part is, uh, His Holiness participated some years ago in a conference with some business people in Europe somewhere. And so these comments are from that and from other uh, circumstances. Every human being has an ethical duty to humanity, a responsibility to consider our common future. In addition, each person has the potential to contribute to the common good. People in the world of business and finance are no exception. They have great potential and great responsibility for global welfare. If they think only of immediate profit, all of us will suffer the consequences. This is already evident in the environmental destruction that has occurred due to the unregulated pursuits of big business. And what are we doing now? We're releasing a lot of the regs that control big business, big banks, big uh, corporations, and so on, and allowing pollution to continue, allowing all sorts of financial things to happen that may result in another recession. Who knows? At the global level, a huge gap exists between wealthy industrialized countries and other nations in which people struggle to fulfill their basic needs for survival. While children in wealthy countries complain when they cannot get the latest technological device, children in impoverished countries face malnutrition. This is very sad. You know, I've always thought that we should take American kids on field trips for a few weeks to third world countries and have them live in third world countries for a few weeks. And I think if we did that, it would completely, it would really change uh, the country a lot because those kids would grow up with some awareness of the rest of the world. Mm -hmm. 
Within each country, too, the rich increase their wealth while the poor remain poor, and in some cases become even poorer. This is not only ethically wrong, it is a source of practical problems. So let alone go to other countries, we should have uh, you know, the wealthy kids, the kids in good neighborhoods, come and and live in poor communities for a few weeks and see what see what that's like. Okay, because we can see just how uh, many times in the wealthier communities, the people are really living in their own bubbles, and the kids grow up with no idea of the rest of the world. I remember when uh, remember when uh, when Donnie what he was, it was something about IDs and he made the comment about uh, well just to go to the grocery store and buy food you need to show your ID and that just shows he's never been to the grocery store and bought his own food you know he's what seventy something years old never been to the grocery store and bought his own food because he thinks you need to show an ID to, to buy food at the grocery store. Clearly somebody who thinks that has never had that experience. So why not? So why are these kids living in that kind of bubble, you know, with no knowledge of uh, even how other people in this country live? Yeah. Now they have their own problems. Yeah, Venerable Domcho was speaking at Stanford this last weekend, and, you know, it's pressure galore. Those, those kids just have so much pressure to achieve and compete and, you know. And also in Singapore, I noticed it, they, they stream the children when they're very young. And so you're very young and you're already classified as advanced or dull or whatever. And there's some kids that, you know, they're called late bloomers, you know. They don't bloom and get interested in school until they're, you know, preteen or teen. Yeah, my brother was like that. Yeah. I mean, in second grade, he was really having trouble. I remember that. And now he's a doctor. You know, if he had lived in Singapore, they would have streamed him. So he probably would have been a garbage collector or something. You know, garbage collectors are very important. They don't need, you know, the the education. Of course, doctors collect a lot of garbage too, I guess. You know, when you, when you do surgery, you're taking out garbage. So, um, yeah, but... You know, we need to, to really, uh, yeah, make it so that people know more each, about each other's lives. Yeah? And now in the country, too, you know, people who live in the city aren't aware of rural America. Rural America isn't aware of people in the cities. You know, so you develop these blo uh, voting blocks and you develop elites and then, you know, there's a lot of, uh, you know, division in the country because people are just out of touch with how other people live. Yeah. So His Holiness says this is not only ethically wrong, it is a source of practical problems, both things. Even though governments may theoretically ensure equal rights and opportunities, this great economic disparity places the poor 
at disadvantage in terms of obtaining good education and jobs. As a result, they feel discontent and discouraged, which feeds resentment toward the privileged. This, in turn, uh, entices them to become involved in legitimate protest as well as gangs, crime, and terrorism. So the social discord affects the happiness of both the wealthy and the poor. Okay, you, you put racism into this mix, and boy, do you have a mess. Yeah, um, uh, I was reading an article today about, what, what was the term they called it? Some, like after the, uh, after Reconstruction, they, what was it called, the Restoration or something like that, after they uh, canceled Reconstruction and started, uh, govern state government started introducing the Black Codes and removing, uh, you know, voters, black voters from the uh, voting rolls and having poll taxes and literal literacy tests and all sorts of things. Um, you know, just kind of how that affected the entire country, you know, making a huge group of people locked into poverty and not being able to get loans to start businesses or loans to buy houses or to uh, earn enough wealth to pass on to their children. Yeah, and it, it, all these uh, laws were, you know, based on racism. So you put all that together, you know, and we, we get big mess, okay? And so, you know, here's when you when you really see the importance of uh, Buddhist values, you know, if we meditate on equanimity, yeah, and, uh, you know, uh, not only equanimity in terms of attachment, aversion, and ignorance, but equanimity in terms of resources, yeah, then, uh, you know, we can see that, that our Buddhist practice definitely pertains to all these social issues. Each person wants to leave the world having made a positive contribution. Everyone wants to ensure that their children and grandchildren have good lives. Therefore, I ask those involved in business and government to keep future generations in mind as you make decisions in the present. Yeah? That's what we should send to our representatives. I wonder if they'd read it. <laughs> yeah. Human activities in all fields are constructive when done with regard for the interdependence of all beings. An awareness of the profound interconnection among all beings and the planet we share inspires a sense of responsibility and concern for others. A commitment to the welfare of society, awareness of the consequences of our actions, and restraint from harm. When we act with concern for only short-term interests or the welfare of only a select group, or when our intention is simply to accrue money or power, our actions inevitably bring unpleasant results for everyone, others and ourselves. Yeah, because when other people are exploited, 
it affects the entire society, you know, and that we have to live with people who are unhappy because they're being exploited. So this is why His Holiness says, if you want to be selfish, care about others, because if you do things that help others, then you live with people who are happy instead of people who are miserable. Mm -hmm. Our motivation is pivotal. For any human endeavor to be constructive, we must first check our motivation and purify it of ignorant and self-centered intent as much as possible. The most important element in a healthy and productive motivation is a sense of caring for others, an awareness of the big picture, and long-term results. So, you know, of course this applies to society. It implies to what we're doing here. You know, we're just another society, a small society. Yeah. So we have to, you know, have a sense of caring for others, an awareness of the big picture, and of long-term results. Mm -hmm. With such a motivation, doing business and making money are fine. These activities are not inherently flawed or corrupt. Yeah. So if you have a good motivation, then you can do a lot, you know, and you can create jobs for people who don't have jobs. And, you know, do, uh, you know I think a lot of the, the people trying to use wind energy and solar energy and, you know, doing things, creative things like that, that can really benefit everybody. Some business people tell me that doing business honestly reduces their profit and bogs them down in bureaucracy. Because increasing their profits also benefits society and their employees, they say that cutting corners to facilitate business is beneficial. I have doubts about this kind of reasoning. <laughs> Ethical standards and ethical behavior are neither a nuisance nor unrealistic when it comes to business matters. For me, ethics means doing what is right, and that means what is beneficial for self and others. There may be times when what is beneficial in the long term and short term conflict, but many other times when they coincide. Overemphasis on short-term benefit often harms the long-term good, while wise attention paid to the long-term goals usually pays off, even if in the short term you have to sacrifice something or get less. If you're working towards your long-term goals, in the end it's going to, to be better for everybody. If a company cheats its clients or customers, these stakeholders will become aware of the situation and stop doing business with that company. In addition, these customers and clients will tell others about the company's deceitful practices, and consequently others will avoid doing business with that company. When clients are treated respectfully and charged fair prices, they will do business with that company over a long period of time and will refer their friends to it as well, thus increasing the company's profit over the long term. So our friend Linnea, 
that you know. She used to be a big executive in Levi Strauss in Hong Kong. And uh, I asked her about this one day, you know, about, uh, you know, overcharging customers and so on to, you know, fudging things in order to sign a contract and and get get more money. And she was very clear that if you treat customers like that, you may score more money now, but they're not going to come back and be your customers later. Whereas if you treat them fairly now, even though you make less money now, those people will remain loyal customers for a long, long, long time. Yeah. So there's um, <laughs> there's some friends we have in, in Singapore, and every year when I go there, the man asks the same question. He's a businessman. And every year he asks me, how can I do business honestly because I have to lie in order to close deals? You know, every year he asks this question. And every year I give the same example or the same ex explanation that I just did. And every year he says, that sounds nice, but it's impossible. <laughs> yeah? But it's actually quite possible to do. Yeah, it's quite possible. Uh, I know, what is it, Dick's Sporting Goods, they have stopped uh, selling um, AK and AR uh, assault weapons. They're stopping also to, to um, I think, hmm? ammunition also. And I think they're thinking long-term of removing all firearms from their stores. You know, so if I ha wanted sporting goods, which, you know, what am I going to do? <laughs> sporting goods. I would go to Dick's Sporting Goods, you know, because here's, here's a human being who cares about society. Yeah. I heard Walmart is maybe starting to do a little bit of that, too. They certainly need to because, you know, uh, I remember Michael Moore uh, after Columbine, when he made his uh, his movie about Columbine, what was it called? Bowling for, Bowling for Columbine, and he had one of the kids who was shot during that school massacre, who still had bullets, uh, or fragments of bullets in his body up and down his spine, and he took that kid into I think it was Walmart, and uh, <laughs> and the the kid said. I want a refund. I have your product in my body. I want a refund. I want to give these back to you. You know, of course, the surgery was too dangerous for, you know. But I that really stuck in my mind. Yeah. Here was a teenager. Yeah. So, um, you know, these countries, these companies definitely have a moral obligation, you know, for the welfare of society. That, to me, has nothing to do with the Second Amendment, you know. I mean, we, we have to license cars. Why don't we license guns? Yeah, what's it, you know, why not? We license everything else. Yeah. 
And people have, you have to do driver's ed. People should have to do, you know, and at least have safety protocols. You know, there was a little girl on Halloween that got killed by a stray bullet. Yeah. In Philadelphia, there's been, so far this year, 300 homicides. That's like one every day. And that's just one city. You know, I mean, this is totally ridiculous. And um, it has nothing to do with Second Amendment. It has everything to do with safety, education, and well-being, yeah? Caring about others. Uh, also, they've, they've seen that so many of the killings that have happened with guns are suicides, yeah? And by having such a prevalence of guns, people can just go to the store, get a gun, and then kill themselves like this, you know? And people say, well, if they're going to kill themselves, they'll find some way anyway. But that's not exactly true because if, if you have difficulty getting the means to commit suicide, it gives you more time to think if, if you really want to do it or not. And some people, you know, in the flush of some real tough moment of depression may have that idea. But if they wait a day, you know, they don't want to kill themselves. Yeah? So not making it so easy to get firearms would really uh, inhibit suicides. Yeah? And how many families suffer from suicides? You know, I mean, the person who kills themselves suffers, and the family suffers. Yeah? So... I should get off my soapbox. <laughs> but it's something I feel quite strongly about. When arrested for illegal business practices, CEOs and their families suffer disgrace and humiliation. Their behavior causes the public to lose faith in the stock market, which in turn, har in turn harms those corporations and the national economy. Corporations spend an enormous amount on legal fees due to their malpractices. So even if we consider prosperity in this life, dishonest business practices ruin individuals and companies. Buddhist practitioners have even greater reason to abandon illegal and deceitful business practices, for they understand the destructive karma involved and the three kinds of uh, dukkha, uh, three kinds of suffering, oh, and the three kinds of uh, effects of suffering, oh, here suffering is, sorry, the three kinds of suffering effects that it produces. I was confusing a noun and an adjective. They know that <clears throat> truthful business dealings and kind interactions with others uh, are constructive actions that bring prosperity and good relationships in future lives. Aware that, <clears throat> aware that happiness comes from having a contented mind, not from greedily grasping for more wealth. 
True Dharma practitioners conduct their business affairs honestly. Although in the short term they may not make as much profit as dishonest business people, in the long term they will have fewer problems and more mental peace. And when you see what some of the the people go through um, who do dishonest practices, you know, and how, you know, how many lawyers they have to hire, you know, and lawyers are not cheap, you know, because they have so many suits against them, you know, and then you have to worry about those, you have to pay the lawyer bills, you have to, all sorts of stuff, you know, it's just not worth it. Trump Charities was just, uh, uh, the courts are making them pay $2 million towards uh, charities. Yeah, because the their supposed charity, the judge said, was nothing more than, um, you know, a payroll for his, yeah, his personal means and politics. Yeah. Hmm? Two two million. Yeah. <laughs> it becomes a cost of doing business. Hmm? Fines become a cost of doing business. Mm. Yeah. Fines and lawyer fees and everything. But the aggravation—is it worth that? Okay. In the business world, compassion translates into cooperation responsibility, and caring. Some companies now take more care of their employees, clients, and customers. Yeah, and some companies started out doing it, and then they stopped. You know, a lot of the tech companies really started out doing this, but don't do it so much now. They see that a pleasant working environment in which individuals are valued, respected, and have a voice increases productivity. Although their main motivation for caring for others may be financial gain, they nevertheless know that their success is dependent on others and that therefore kindness and fairness are important. In the end, this produces happier employees, a good working environment, and a better reputation for the company. This, in turn, wins public approval and support, which benefits, uh, which benefit the company. Yeah. Uh, you know, a lot of these companies are doing uh, mindfulness meditation, teaching mindfulness meditation to their employees. The motivation is not so that the employees are happier. It's so that, well... Technically, it's so that the employees are more peaceful, so then they can be more productive and earn more money for the company. Okay, so the whole bottom line in justifying uh, the introduction of a helpful program is to increase profits. Yeah, not to uh, really benefit the employees. Some people assume that compassion in business means being too soft, abandoning competition, and thus not being successful. These assumptions are not correct. There are two types of competition. One is negative. For example, 
actively creating obstacles for competitors or cheating uh, customers in our efforts to reach the top. The other type of competition is beneficial. We want to improve ourselves and work hard to attain our goal, but not at others' expense. We accept that just like us, others also have the wish and the right to success. Wanting to attain a goal is not necessarily selfish. In spiritual practice, our desire to become Buddhas is not self-centered. It doesn't involve promoting ourselves at others' expense. Rather, to be more capable of benefiting others, we develop our abilities and talents and work toward that goal. So there's nothing wrong with wanting to be the best. That motivation gives us initiative and encourages progress. However, what makes us the best is not always money and status. Okay, What makes us the best is not always beating out other people. Okay, If a company makes huge profits and earns a bad name, that's not being the best. A business that benefits more people and serves the community better than its competitors has become the best. So he's really defining what best, redefining what best means. And it's true. Yeah, it's true. Each person in the business and financial world is responsible for his or her own goals and actions. At the end of the day, we have to be able to live with ourselves and feel good about what we have done. Human values are important, no matter our profession. I never heard of anyone who said on their deathbed, I should have made more money. I wish I had worked more overtime, or I should have crushed that competitor. Can you imagine thinking like that when you're dying? Goodness. The transformation of values in the business and financial worlds begins at the individual level. When one individual changes, the effects are felt within that person's sphere of activities. Through the ripple effect, this positive influence will spread to more people. And so what Dick's Sporting Goods, what their CEO decided, this is a very good example of it. You know, he stepped up to the plate, started, you know, um, not selling these things. They even took, I forget how many million dollars worth of guns and destroyed them. They didn't sell them back to the company who would sell them to somebody else. You know, the owner said, I don't want anybody to be killed by the things that I have. And they destroyed, over, it was over a million dollars worth of arms. Okay, now that's a company I admire. And I tell you, if I needed sporting goods, I would, I would go there. <laughs> okay, you know, we should ask them to make robes, then we can, you know, then we can, yeah. Okay, so the next section is the media and the arts. Okay, so, uh, okay. I'm looking at the clock and it says 35%. What? <laughs> then I look at the clock and it says, 
2008, and I'm going, no, this is 2019. <laughs> and I realized, no, it's, it's eight, eight minutes past eight. That's what it means. <laughs> Maybe we can shift it to 12-hour things instead of 20. Okay, so the media and the arts. The media... <clears throat> plays a vital role in investigating important issues and bringing them to public's, the public's attention. And I appreciate their efforts in this direction. The freedom of the press benefits society greatly. And it's imperative to have free, to, free press to have a democracy. You know, so, you know, calling all this, what's going on now, um, I mean, we really have to think of it. Calling any press that we where we disagree with what they write fake news, yeah, or the enemy of the people, just calling it that, we're just, you know, people who do that are destroying democracy, yeah, because a free press is essential, yeah. What, you know, we have to think about is the role of social media, in sharing uh, information, because that's become a real problem, you know, because anybody with a computer can say things and spread it out there. And then, of course, you know, now we have other countries, um, you know, using social media to influence our elections. Yeah, I'm hoping this brings some awareness to how much America has uh, interfered with other countries' elections, you know, even to the point sometimes of assassinating people, you know. But we, we don't think that that's equivalent because we're doing it for the benefit of freedom and these other people interfering with our elections are doing it to counteract freedom. Um, you know, my, my dad used to say, there's two kind of dictators, our dictators and other people's dictators. <laughs> but they're both dictators. You know, what's the, uh, the difference, you know? So, I mean, this thing with social media is really a big problem now. And to the point that people want like Facebook and so on, to police what people post. But they have so many uh, accounts. I mean, how can they possibly police everything? You know, people put up so much stuff every day that, and they just don't, you know, to pay to, to read all that stuff. The, the company can't. And yet, you know, uh, what's his name? Zuckerberg. Zuckerberg. Yeah. So he just says, well, you know, we can't do it, but anyway, we have to have a free press. And so we just let people post whatever they want, whether it's true or not, whether it's, you know, they're, they're uh, issuing death threats to other people or not. You know, sometimes I think our, our First Amendment thing has gone a little bit too far. Europe kind of reigns uh, it in a bit. Yeah, but our our First Amendment is it's really broad. In one way, that's wonderful, but in another way, it's uh, you know it really allows people to give voice to their worst worst thoughts. 
and not be responsible for it. Okay. The freedom of press benefits society greatly. At the same time, those working in the media need to have compassion for the entire society and not sensationalize events in order to have larger scales. We have a friend who uh, worked uh, at one point in um, MSNBC and, and on, online, and he, you know, he was a reporter, and he was telling me that you, you know, you have to just exaggerate everything a little bit or present it in a certain way, uh, so that people want to read it, and then of course they buy it, and they have the ads, and you know, and the company makes more money by sensationalizing things. Solina says, I find it frightening that people are constantly fed violence on the news as well as for entertainment. No wonder people de report depression and despair and children grow uh, into violent adults. Yeah. You see violence on the screen and it's an everyday happening. You know, you get numb to it. And then when it happens to you in your neighborhood, you're shocked. Yeah, It's entertainment when it's on the screen. But when it's real, it's horrific. Yeah, I don't know how people find it entertaining. Balanced reporting is essential. On one day in any large city, a few people receive great harm, whereas so many people receive help in the form of health care, education, friendship, and so on. Yet the headlines about the harmful events dominate. The tremendous amount of help that people give each other every day is overlooked. And it doesn't sell papers. You know? Like, you know, 50,000 children in this city received a day's education. You know? Now, nobody's going to read the article. Yeah. We cut the lunch for 50,000 people, 50,000 kids. A few people will care, read that article. Because that's what the, the federal government is doing now, is starting to cut the lunch program for kids in school. I know, it's totally unbelievable. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, yeah. Okay. So the tremendous amount of help that people give each other every day is overlooked. In this way, citizens get a skewed view of humanity and their suspicion, fear, and distrust increase. If the media also reported the helpful activities that people do for each other and for the planet each day, people would have a more realistic perspective and would be aware of the great kindness human beings show each other. This, in turn, would cause the public to be more optimistic about the future, which would prompt them to work harder to create a good future for themselves and others. Yeah. And it's true, the news you know, uh, outlets only report what's bad. Yeah. And once in a while, you know, they'll report a few good things, or what some people think are, think are good. But then, uh, 
Yeah, other people don't necessarily share that perspective. But uh, I was at an event where His Holiness was talking about that, and he was, you know, really saying, uh, you know, I really appreciate how the media, they sniff around and they find out corruption and they, you know, things that aren't going well. He goes, you know, sniff around and find these things and expose them. And he says, that's really good. But, you know, we need to also talk about people helping other people, you know, because we need a much more well-rounded view of what's going on in the world than, than what we're getting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's, there's one thing, you know, there's one uh, uh, news outlet that has good news. They have a column that says good news. And it's really sweet. It's very sweet. Um, they often point out, uh, they have articles about kids who um, wake up their family when there's a fire in the house, you know, or about, uh, um, you know, somebody who's working at McDonald's and there's a drive through and the person who's driving through is having a heart attack or a stroke and the, the person at McDonald's jumps through the window to go, you know, keep the car from crashing. And, you know, people, you know, lots of stories about people helping each other. And it's so sweet, you know. It's really nice to read these and to, to think of... Um, not only the kids, but also the adults, but especially the kids that get pointed out for doing something good, you know. Or kids, oh, there was one story about a kid who, um, I don't know what she was doing. She opened a lemonade stand or something, but she was earning some money from something uh, to give to her teacher so her teacher got a pay raise. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, so just these stories of just, you know, people having kindness for each other, yeah, or, um, what was it, I saw something else, oh, yeah, I didn't read the article, but there was something about some lobster, uh, the people catching the lobsters in Maine, and they found a deer that was like five miles from out on something, I don't know, on a rock or something. And they saved this deer and brought it back. And I thought, that's good. You know, they, they create so much negative karma from killing lobsters, but at least they value life and they saved the deer, you know? So to, to just, uh, you know, see these things and how people do have, you know, care for each other and for strangers and for animals, you know, and it's it's definitely there and we need to hear more about that mm-hmm. and speak more about it. The plots of movies and entertainment usually revolve around violence and sex. One of my American students told me that one day she heard a child suggest to his playmates, let's play divorce. The children then proceeded to quarrel and argue, mimicking those on television programs they had seen. The media had great potential to influence others, 
or the media has great potential to influence others, as well as the responsibility to use this potential wisely. Movies showing people developing skills to resolve their conflicts in a fair and mutual, uh, mutually beneficial way can also be entertaining in addition to teaching good communication skills. Okay. Which reminds us, some, reminds me, somebody uh, offered uh, RBG, yeah, RBG, uh, her, her video, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, so I think uh, it'd be nice we could all watch it together. Yeah. And then I, I also saw one recently. Um, one of my a nun who does prison work down in California sent me the link to uh, a video, the, which is fantastic. It's about um, it's called a feminist in blo in block Y, and it's talking about a guy. Um, you know, who, who's talking about toxic masculinity and how it related to, because uh, he's talking to a group of inmates in a prison, uh, and how it relates to why they're all imprisoned and what they did, you know, and the kind of assumptions that lie behind that kind of image of what it means to be a man. And you watch these guys who are imprisoned really opening up and talking from their heart about it. It's, it's very, very moving. So these kind of documentaries or, or films, these are, are things that are good, that will educate the public and make us um, feel much more hopeful about humanity. Mm -hmm. So the media, as well as the makers of video and online games, have some responsibility for the tragedies of mass shootings. When violence becomes entertainment, and when it is so normal that children see hundreds of instances of it each week on television or the internet or video games, it plants seeds in their minds that will affect their behavior. Those working in the media Game design and advertising must have the well-being of the entire society in mind, not to mention the welfare of their own kids. I sometimes wonder if the people who write these uh, video games, violent video games, if they let their own kids play them. Yeah. They should use their great creative powers and intelligence to influence youth in a constructive way and to teach them good human values, kindness, and respect for others. Throughout history, the arts have been a medium for the expression of the highest human values and values and aspirations, as well as of despair and depravity. Depra am I saying it? Depravity. Depravity, depravity. Many people in the arts, painters, writers, actors, dancers, musicians, and others, ask me about the role of the arts in spiritual practice. As with other occupations, this depends on the artist's motivation. If art is created simply to make a name for oneself with no concern for the effect it has on others, it is of questionable spiritual value. On the other hand, if artists with compassion for the welfare of others 
use their talents to benefit others, their art can be magnificent artistically and spiritually. You'll notice all the Tonka paintings that Tibetan artists do. Uh, they don't write their names on the paintings. Yeah? Can you imagine in the West somebody not writing their name on one of their paintings? Yeah? So I think that's, that's quite significant. I don't know spiritual art. You know, in the West, do they sign their names? Anybody know? You know, I mean, we all know the Sistine chapels, some of the people active there, but... Yeah, some, some do, some don't. Okay. So, um, questions, comments? I think a lot about how uh, capitalism is driven by profit, mm. this idea of profit and how it's depending on the idea of private gain. And, you know, you ask, why does the economy have to keep growing? And what it reminded me of is like a, a Ponzi scheme. It's constantly needing new input to keep it going because if it stopped with the input, it would just collapse because it's not, it's built on like these promises, you know, the idea of these big gains that it's, it's not quite real and there's yeah. big costs you know, um, the profits that companies get today, it's destroying the environment. So tomorrow, it won't be a profit. It'll be a loss. Mm -hmm. So I think a lot about, you know, how, if you have an economic system driven by greed, <laughs> like how, how can we get out of this? It just seems so destructive. Yeah. Well, this is, I mean, this is part of the difficulty with being in samsara. As You know, what are the three poisonous attitudes yeah greed hatred and and ignorance so you know controlling our greed certainly is part of our dharma practice but to think that we'll ever get rid of greed in human and human society means everybody has to get out of samsara okay so what we need to do is at least try and temper the greed, and that starts with working ourselves on ourselves. I wonder if it would be worthwhile for us as a community to do some brainstorming about how we can go even further to limit our footprint. Mm -hmm. I think there are probably a lot of ways that we could still come up with that um, it would reduce the impact that we have on the Yeah, I think that would be very good, you know. But not just brainstorm, but a commitment to follow through. Because we already know what we can do, but we don't do it. <laughs> yeah. Yes, I think we can do more also. Yeah. But we need uh, people's willingness to, uh, to be inconvenienced or to not get exactly what we want. I was in the car Monday night driving back from UU, mm -hmm. making pollution. Um, on the ride, I was listening to an interview with a woman living in New Delhi. 
-hmm. and talking about the air quality this week. And so today I got quite interested. And I just will share just a little bit of what's in the news with what's going on there. So on November 2nd, 21 of the 37 air quality monitoring stations in Delhi registered in the severe category. Since then, the city's been grappling with the worst ever pollution crisis. Air Quality Index, an international metric used by public health officials that accounts for a range of major air pollutants. Any reading above 100 is considered unhealthy. In some areas of Delhi this week, the Air Quality Index recorded well over 900, according to these bulletins. Um, One more thing. By estimate... Breathing Delhi's air for one day right now has the health impacts of smoking at least 25 cigarettes. So this one woman who was being interviewed is a journalist there, and Mm -hmm. she said, essentially right now, I'm a chain smoker, and every (laughs) child that's being born into Mm -hmm. this city right now is a smoker. Yeah. Yeah. And this happens every year at this time of year because the farmers burn uh, the residual parts of their crops. Yeah. And it's, uh, yeah. And Beijing's air is, uh, is almost as bad. In Singapore, it, what season is it when the, the Indonesians? burn uh, a lot of their forests in order to plant palm uh, palm oil trees. It was like a month or two or earlier than we are now. Yeah, and the pollution just spreads from Indonesia, you know, into Singapore and all over that whole region. And it's horrible. You know, this is, it's, it's greed, the manifestation of greed. So this is why we have to get out of samsara. And this is why we have to help others get out, you know. Because all of this starts with the mind. It all comes from the mind, doesn't it? I listened to an author recently. I never knew this was existing, but there's a woman who is an emeritus professor at Harvard. She started in social psychology and then went into philosophy, but worked at their business school for many years, and she wrote a book about what she labeled surveillance capitalism. And it's really, really fascinating. I didn't realize that the companies like Facebook and um, actually Google invented this technology where it's actually like subliminal messaging that they're doing, Mm -hmm. and it's actually causing people's behavior to change, and they've proven this and done this, and this is actually what's happening. It's mm-hmm. happening on Facebook, and it's like this is the model that people are using, and we're actually not aware of it. Mm-hmm. I never heard about this before. Mm-hmm. They, there's a, it's very well documented in her book. She's got, um, she's labeling these things, and you know, kind of bringing this out. And it's, mm-hmm. I think, something people should know about because it's these are media's that everyone's using. Yeah, and it's also why we should. Um, really reduce our interaction with the media. Yeah. And connect more with real people 
and not seek entertainment so much. I didn't realize that they, one of the things she talked about was in the 2012 election, mm-hmm. they ran this thing and they influenced people's behavior to get out the vote. And they, you know, there's things that yeah. actually have happened that in our society that we were. Oh, I mean, what do you think the Russian yeah. interference right. in the 2016 right. election was? Yeah, well, I never understood really how how they made how they made this happen. Yeah. But she she um, explained the the what they're doing actually and how mm-hmm. it how it works. And I just like the Cambridge Analytics thing and why why all this works. I couldn't mm-hmm. quite grok it before, but. She really lays it out quite well. Yeah. Okay, so all the more reason to think for ourselves, yeah, and to cut back on our interaction with the media. Mm